Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This episode is a replay from last year with writer Rebecca Seal. It's an episode all about how to work from home better. Rebecca is the author of Solo, How to Work Alone and Not Lose Your Mind. It's a fantastic book, absolutely filled to the brim with work from home advice and tips and anecdotes. It's a science and evidence-based exploration of what working alone does to your brain and well-being and how to cope with the more difficult aspects of solo work. She doesn't shy away from talking about her own tough times in her working from home life and I found the book really really helpful. I personally love working from home but there definitely are challenges. When she first started writing the book she thought it would be for freelancers and self-employed people and then obviously the Covid pandemic happened and a lot of us were working from home by choice and not by choice so I wanted to put this episode back out there. I found it really useful so I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rebecca Seal. You have written such a brilliant book about working alone. It's called Solo and it spoke to me as someone who works very much by myself. And for anyone listening who needs a little bit of a work from home boost, this is the perfect guest. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. That's such a nice way of introducing me. I'm amazed. Thank you. It's so informative, but I also found it very, very comforting. And I don't know if that was your intention necessarily, but it was like a bit of a hug of like, you can do this and the highs and the lows of it all. Did you write this pre-pandemic? Most of it. Yes. Um, So the book deal happened in 2019, in the summer of 2019. So I started working on it from that point on. I finished writing it in lockdown. Um, So yeah, it it was never ever framed by the pandemic because mostly it had already been done before that happened. I do remember my publisher saying, oh, we, you know, we won't bring the publication date forward, which we ultimately did. It wasn't meant to publish until next April. We ultimately brought the publication date forward once I'd finished the manuscript. But she was saying, you know, I don't know if that's a good idea because, you know, in a couple of months time, if we wait, you'll be able to do a book tour and, you know, you can do events and signings and stuff. Whereas you can't really do that if we do do it, publish it in the next couple of months. And I, you know, I just think we didn't realise what it was going to be like. So I don't know how much it influenced me in that way. But now, of course, the majority of the book is horribly relevant to a huge number of people which yeah, I never yeah. expected. Yeah, it really is so, so relevant. And thank God it's there because your book really, it covers the breadth of it, doesn't it? You re- It really just spans everything from money to the good sides, the, the bad sides, the loneliness, just the mental health, everything. Did you want it to be a bit of a like one shop book? Yeah, I did. I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't kind of get into doing, talking about tax too much or, you know, <laughs> or even pitching and things like that, because I wanted it to be as broadly appealing as possible. I mean, I know someone who's a carpenter, for example, I wanted him to be able to read it. And I wanted my friend who's a personal trainer to read it and get something from it. Um, So I didn't want to go into too much detail about how to run your business exactly. Um, And I felt like there was loads of great stuff out there about that already. It was more that I could never find something that told me how to cope and what I needed to do to help my brain thrive in this kind of odd, rather antisocial environment that I'd found myself in, which isn't really what the social animal of a human expects from their life. So it was, it was dealing with that that I wanted to do. And then I realized that obviously that affects everything. It affects 
money your surroundings affect it you know the rhythms of your day affect everything productivity you know it's all sort of linked and connected together so I think that's how it ended up being so broad but also I'd been doing it for 10 years by that point so I I had a fairly good understanding of all the things that could go wrong (laughs) and all the mistakes (laughs) you could make because I'd made them (laughs) yeah it's been there done that storytelling I love it there's a bit in the book, I think you've taught me a new phrase and I loved it, which was being a sociable introvert. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> it's like, that's me. <laughs> um, but one of the questions I get asked the most, I would say, from people who listen to this podcast or have read the multi-hyphen method, they always come to me wanting advice on the loneliness aspect of it. Because even though in your book, you um, you know you list all of the brilliant benefits of working by yourself and I remember reading this book years ago called Company of One and how you're just one and you can make all the decisions and you can ultimately be free. And and like there's so many perks to working by yourself. I personally love it. But I'm so glad your book early on touched on the loneliness. Would you be able to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. So I experienced really intense loneliness. um, And I think I experienced it for a long time without realizing exactly that that was what I was feeling. So I had a very strong urge from the very beginning of the idea of the book to address that and to try and tell people that it was okay to feel it and that you almost certainly would feel it if you were working by yourself. And I wanted to give people as many tools to deal with it as possible. Um, I think it's quite easy to feel a bit ashamed of feeling lonely. And I felt very ashamed of it because I didn't really, I felt guilty for it in a way because technically things were going well and my career was quite successful and I had enough work and that is quite rare and something of a privilege in the freelance world, particularly now. And so to say to anybody, I'm actually quite miserable, felt, I felt really guilty for that. I felt like it wasn't a legitimate feeling um and I should sort of squash it down and and push it away and so I wanted to make it clear to readers and I've talked about this a lot um in recent weeks and it's something that seems to chime with people um I wanted to be really honest about how bad I had felt and how how isolated I had been and and what I'd done about it you know and that that, that, that things can be really simple like right in front of me I've got a post-it note that says call your friends I don't know if you can see that on the zoom screen but um you know I just I have to be reminded that my life is about much more than work and I need constantly to tell myself to make time for the people that I care about and to call on the telephone not zoom <laughs> to call them um because otherwise you kind of lose connection and this year is so intensely difficult in terms of maintaining relationships with people but um but we all have to really act on it and it's not something that just happens if you work by yourself you have to really make a plan and um engage with the idea of preventing your own loneliness and and one of the ways i find actually most successful in that is remembering that by preventing your own loneliness you're preventing other people's too sometimes it's easier for us to think about how we can help other people than to think about our own self-care as it were and so so maybe that's a good way in if you are consistently supporting people around you who you care about then they're naturally going to be doing the same thing for you and your connection will be deeper to them because of that 
Um, so we just all have to keep talking. We just have to keep talking and being honest about how we feel and not pretending that everything's okay. Because I think this year, no, nobody's okay. Yes. <laughs> not completely. Yes. If there's one thing 2020 has brought me is that complete honesty of like, no one's okay. Mm. And the performance is up really. If you were doing that, it's not really washing yeah. anymore yeah. to pretend you're okay. But I, it's funny because I, I feel like I follow my work schedule so religiously that I find that if I put like call mum and dad in my work calendar, I will do it. But yeah. it's so sad that I'm following my work calendar to do that. <laughs> well, you could reframe how you think of it and think of it as just your life calendar. I have done some work on my to-do list and I, I go into this in the book, but my to-do list is now my life list. I have sections in it where there are things which I call deadlines, but they are just as likely to be by presents for my daughter's birthday. Um, and, um, you know, it's like overshare, but on it at the moment, my deadline is book your smear test. <laughs> um, you know, That's a good one. <laughs> um, but why shouldn't that be in the deadline section of my life? Because, these things are really important. And one of the problems that I had was that all of that stuff, all the personal stuff, all the stuff which related to being a good partner or friend or taking care of myself was always on a separate list, which got ignored. Um, and so I've decided that, yeah, you do need boundaries between your work time and your lifetime, but you also need to say that there are some life things which are just as important, if not more important than work. So I've allowed a level of merging, which I originally thought would be unhealthy, but actually has allowed my life stuff to have the priority that it should have. Because actually life is more important than work. <laughs> yes. And that's why, I mean, personally, that's, that's the reason I work for myself is I could not believe the work culture of these fancy job titles, uh, offices where you have to like beg someone to give you time off to go to the doctors. Yeah. I was like, this is the most toxic environment where where a doctor's appointment is is being like people are rolling their eyes at that yeah yeah definitely um it's the crazy. freedom the freedom is the most brilliant part about not just working for yourself but working from home and I think what a lot of people are experiencing this year is that um if you are working from home you can to a certain degree set your own hours and obviously there are some companies which are making huge mistakes and are doing digital surveillance of their workers which terrible idea terrible idea i'd like everybody to stop it immediately um but you know for those people who are being more allowed to set their own hours then they're discovering the great things about that that you know you can go for a walk in your lunch hour you can make yourself something delicious for lunch um and you can book your own doctor's appointments whenever you want them <laughs> hooray yeah i know right small small wins small freedoms <laughs> Um, I wondered if we could talk a little bit just quickly about Zoom mm. burnout, because I read a series of tweets recently by a therapist whose name I've completely forgotten. So I will link it below for people uh, listening. But basically, they were saying that Zoom is really hard because you're in this weird limbo where you'd rather be in someone's company or not be in their company. Yeah. But being reminded that you're not in their company is like really exhausting. And I just wondered for that person who's working from home and having the family quiz on zoom but an hour before has just had a really big work meeting on zoom is there anything around that that you could offer up yeah don't do the family quiz on zoom <laughs> have a phone call with each individual person on that um on that group 
and don't do the quiz. I think, you know, the quizzes are fine for people like my parents who do like three FaceTimes a week with, you know, me. Um, but it's not, it's not great for anyone who's highly overexposed already. I think one of the other things about Zoom, and I've been reading some research about this recently, is that it, it does this odd thing where you're, you think you're in, um, your brain thinks it's in the presence of a three-dimensional person, but the data is only two-dimensional. And it's also a huge amount of data. It's, it's, um, it's a very different way of experiencing human contact, but also you don't see the majority of the person. So you miss out on all of the, well, not all, but almost all of the subconscious messaging that you get in a, in a real conversation. So I can't see your hands in this conversation. I don't know what your, <laughs> thanks, good hands. Um, I, you know, I don't really know what you're wearing and we, um, we take a lot of messaging about someone's um, well-being, their, their their mental health. You know, if someone turned up in the office and they looked really bedraggled and their their physical, um, you know, their body language is very hunched, and you would say, "Are you okay? Like, what's going on?" But we lose all of that stuff. So we're our brains are constantly trying to make sense of these flat, often slightly delayed slightly fuzzy versions and also if you've got six people in front of you on a screen when do you ever make eye contact with six people at once or 12 <laughs> like it never happens so it's really properly overwhelming and I, I think it's more about that in fact than just too many conversations over the course of a day I think it's the the way that the information comes to us is just not what our brains are prepared for there's a fascinating bit of research that I came up uh, came came in contact with while I was doing the research for the book that said that we we come into contact with about 11 million bits of information a second is that right and our brains actually take in about 40 um, so we weren't really equipped for the information that we would get in the pre-digital age and now we get huge amounts of data digitally and then you add in constant zooming for some professions it's just it's no wonder that people are shattered by this experience so I think what we, yeah. if you can possibly make a call into a phone call and not a zoom if it doesn't have to be a zoom just don't make it a zoom it's really good advice because <laughs> I've been going on walks with my airpods in and actually having a conversation on the phone and so nice and it means you don't have to look at your own face yes yeah yeah you don't have to look at your own face and also we we can we're quite good with phone calls we're quite good at um detecting information through just a voice it's less confusing so we can actually take more nuance from just a voice than a voice and a digital image of someone oddly um so it actually works a bit better so yeah i think i think less zoom many many less zooms (laughs) would be good for everyone they say on zoom yeah (laughs) (laughs) um no that's such good advice thank you so much for that reminder because um yeah that example was basically me during the first lockdown where I just was doing like getting paid to do work on zoom yeah having meetings on zoom seeing my friends on zoom like it was intense wasn't it so at least we've learned maybe from that yeah um so I wanted to ask you because I just found this so fascinating as well about your book you have a background in food. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, she was the former assistant editor of the Observer food section. Wow. <laughs> um, so I've been really enjoying reading your kind of food related articles and also just how that fits in to all of this, because it really does. And I am definitely someone that forgets to, you know, have a proper lunch. And of course it affects everything, doesn't it? It does. And it's weird. I'm kind of waging a campaign to get people to um, have a, have a lunch break. Like every couple of days I do an Instagram post that is like, have, have lunch, 
stop and have lunch. Um, so yeah, and I've published a few articles. It's like a nice little um, intersection of my two completely different types of work where I get to basically create recipes for lunches for one, really quick lunches for one, which are sort of good brain food and, um, and joyful to eat. So that's been lovely. But yeah, it's, I didn't even intend to write a chapter about food, but then I went on this, um, a couple of Facebook groups with other solo workers and started canvassing about what they might like me to cover because I wanted to make sure that I was not missing anything. And everybody kept saying, how do I not, people who didn't know I was a food writer just kept saying, how do I not eat toast? How do I not eat the whole fridge? You know, how do I stop having, yeah, how do I stop having Cheerios for lunch? And I was like, wow, I didn't realize this was a problem. And then I started asking more questions and then it became clear that actually, yeah, this is a massive problem that people when they're on their own feel really, um, disinclined to look after themselves properly from a food point of view and I was immediately terribly worried about that so then I did a chapter in the book about it which weirdly is a chapter that people will keep saying oh yeah that really that really spoke to me and then I got commissioned to start doing articles about it and yeah it's quite it's quite mad I mean I'm happy that that's happened but it's totally unexpected it also makes it slightly easier to switch between the two topics because I think one of the one of the only it's not a downside, but it's quite challenging. Like just before you called, I was editing an article of mine that I had some queries on about ceviche. It's about the history of ceviche that I've written for National Geographic. So I've got to do that on Monday and then like finish it on Monday and then, you know, talk to you sensibly about the book. And then I've got to go back to doing something else about a chocolate brownie recipe that I'm working on. It's like, it's quite, it's quite intense swinging between these two different topics and personalities. So when they cross over, it's a bit easier <laughs> on my brain. I love that, as you probably know, the fact that we all are so multifaceted more than we think. Yeah. But yeah, that must be hard to kind of wear different hats throughout the day. Yeah. But um, but yeah, love that bit. And it's funny because I interviewed Dr. Emma Hepburn recently and she was saying that if you're feeling weird or sad or down or any kind of negative emotion, basically ask yourself first if you're hungry. Yeah. Yeah, like, totally. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the um, one of the interviewees in the book said the same thing. Um, an explorer. She was like, "If I start getting into a negative spiral, it usually means I need to sit down and eat something." And I and I took that to heart. I was like, "I must remember that." I'm, you know, I'm very prone to getting hangry, um, and it's easy to forget when you're on your own that that might be a, that might be the problem. Well, for anyone listening, go and Google Rebecca and her food articles because there's one, and I can't remember where it is, you probably will know, but it's literally like a checklist of things, really easy things to do to get yourself eating well during the day. Was it the one in the Telegraph? I did a, ah, I did a set it. of articles in the te- yeah. um, of recipes for the Telegraph. Yeah. And so it's um, accompanied by seven options for your um, work from home yeah. solo lunches. Yeah. Little tiny recipes. That was a really fun one to do. And then there's another one coming out in a few weeks in the Guardian as well. So um, I loved it because it also wasn't like make this complicated recipe from scratch. It was like just really like good advice that's practical, but also maybe more challenging, obviously, than toast. <laughs> Only fractionally. I mean, one of my favorite recipes is mixing chipotle paste with baked beans and putting some avocado on top. <laughs> Love it. So it's, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not expecting anyone to start whipping out the caviar. It's just, it, most <laughs> of my advice um, hinges around having nice stuff in jars and tins that you can warm up really quickly. I make a fake dal with madras curry paste from the corner shop at the end of the road and lentil soup. 
mixed together. Like it's really nice and it's really spicy and it's really warming, but it, and it costs about 59 pence. It's not gourmet. I do a lot of gourmet recipes, you know, in other bits of my work, but when I just need something warming and nourishing, I'm not above a tin for sure. I love that. (laughs) That, that that is why it spoke to me I'm the worst person in the kitchen and yeah I felt like I was inspired by it and um yeah it's it's funny because people talk about self-care and self-love and having that self-respect and that is kind of the most basic thing you can do for yourself is like prepare something nice for yourself yeah and if you if you need convincing in a way that isn't to do with the the food in and of itself like if food isn't that exciting or important to you then you can think about it in this way stopping your work and doing something which absorbs your brain um in a completely different and separate way from your work like cooking is a brilliant way of doing everything else later on in the day quicker so having a break which involves something along the lines of deep play which is you know things which really really engage you physically and mentally which i would argue standing at a counter and chopping something delicious is then um, then you, you'll, you'll get your work done quicker through the rest of the day and then you can finish it on time and go off and do the rest of your life, which, as, you know, as I've said before, is much more important and much more interesting than the work bit of you. So I'm, you can think of it like that. <laughs> totally. And I love that your book includes a chapter on non-work, basically, mm. which I wasn't expecting. It's like a lovely little juicy surprise <laughs> at the end. Um, but there was a bit in there actually that really spoke to me because I think I will put my hands up and say that in my 20s work was like everything to me I got completely lost in my work identity which you know is paying off now if I'm being honest I'm like thanks to that hustler but now I'm just completely different I suppose and where my identity lies and in the book you um you talk about that separating it out and also not saying things like I am a writer or I am you know, a worker, Yeah, I just make this thing or I write this thing and make it more of an action. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the danger of the way that we think about work or one of the many dangers of the ways that we think about work um, culturally at the moment is that we have a tendency to behave as though we, we are our jobs, that we fully exist as the thing that we do. Um, and, you know, for some people that will be more true, you know, there will be painters who literally paint for 18 hours a day or whatever, but they're really rare and a bit mad (laughs) and don't have much else going on. Um, And for the rest of us, I just think it's really important to remember that we're, um, we're a lot more interesting and detailed than just the job that we do. And, you know, it's a terrible thing Like we do at parties. I'm guilty of this. Hello, what do you do? You know, it's a way into understanding, we think, who somebody is. But um, but actually, it's not. And when things get difficult, as they have for a lot of people within their work this year, if you over-identify yourself with your job, then it, that can be really painful. Um, and I've had, that, I've had that experience. When I took redundancy from The Observer, um, you know, 12 years ago, I really struggled because like you, I spent my twenties working like crazy. And when I, even though I chose to to leave the job, when I stopped doing it, I didn't really know who I was. It took ages for me to kind of reestablish some idea of myself. And actually all I did was reestablish myself as a freelance writer and nothing else. You know, I didn't have any other hobbies. I just, I worked six days a week, sometimes seven days a week. And um, there wasn't much else of interest about me that's not really living um and and yeah I guess to a certain extent it's paying off in a way but I'd kind of like some of that time back actually 
because I was really unhappy at the same time as, you know, theoretically successful. I'd like to sort of tell that younger version of me that she could have some downtime, <laughs> maybe mm -hmm. go on holiday. <laughs> you know, I feel sad when I look back at what she spent her time doing because it was just mm -hmm. work. Because I just never stopped to think about what I wanted my life to look like. I went freelance and I just put my head down and I worked and I worked and I worked and I didn't look up for five years. And when I did look up, wow. I looked around and thought, this is not what I wanted. I don't know what I did want or do want, but this, this isn't it. Like, you know, it's just, I'm so alone. You know, I remember, I remember crying on the phone to my parents and just saying, I'm so lonely. I'm so lonely because I'd neglected relationships. I'd neglected friendships. You know, I had a, I had a partner who's brilliant. Um, but that, you know, we were just, I felt like it was just him. I had no one else to talk to. And I had done that to myself, you know, it was, um, and so unnecessarily because work is just not that prime. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm so appreciative of your honesty and especially in the book, because I think we can all relate to that. And I suppose my version of it was, I remember looking up one day and realizing that all my friends at the time, or all the friends that I was spending most time with basically were work friends like my actual friends like from school I remember them like years later saying yeah we did feel really sidelined and you know they're the ones actually at the end of the day who have really been through thick and thin and I thought that was quite interesting that I got really swept up in like my new cool friends at work yeah I wonder if that happens to people more than we think oh definitely definitely I mean I didn't have um I had friends at work when I was at the observer but then later on I, I had it was even the connections were even more shallow and some of them over the years have developed into deeper relationships but I just went to a lot of work events a lot I felt you know it was a bit of a social world that that the, that the job came with and um so I was just seeing loads of people, but just having very kind of fleeting conversations with them. And, you know, seeing people is valuable. And my God, if I could go back to, if I could go to a restaurant launch tomorrow, I would be in it straight away because I miss, now I can't have it. I miss it desperately. But at the time, yeah, I just didn't realize that I wasn't really doing anything at depth. Totally. Flitting around and having small talk is not, not the same. Um, but on that note, actually, of kind of what you just said, which was very much it was sort of your own doing, which sounds like a bit intense, but I, I know what you're saying there because your book I felt was a bit of an accountability mm. pep talk as well. Mm. And that's, I think that's why I loved it so much because you don't really shy away from saying things like, you know, if you are continuously drowning under the weight of your own work, you are the, essentially your own boss. So it's kind of your own fault. Yeah. And I was like, oh, Rebecca, <laughs> <laughs> you're like really calling us out here. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I'm yeah, essentially, I'm channel channeling my own mother when I say that, because <laughs> she was the one who would always say it to me. Like she's, she was freelance for my whole childhood. So, um, you know, she, she knows the pitfalls as well. But if I, I would ring her up and say, I can't cope, I've got so much work, there's so many deadlines. And she would say, well, you have to stop saying yes to everything. And I, oh, I can't, I don't know, you know, what if they never come back, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, well, what if you have a nervous breakdown, Rebecca? <laughs> um, so she, she, was, she was calling me on it first. But I do, yeah, I do believe that really strongly that we have to remember, particularly solo workers and freelancers, but I think this is true for all of us to a certain extent, you know, to a greater or lesser extent, depending on what job you do. Like we do have agency and it's, 
really important to remember that you're not just your own boss, but you're also, and I go into this in the book, but you're also the HR manager um, and the business development person and, you know, the social media person. And, and you've got to allow room for all of those different roles to exist in your week. Um, and that HR manager one is, is really important because they're the one who says, you're setting your targets too high. Your team is too small for this. <laughs> um, you can't, you know, you can't manage this or you, you haven't got the space to take on all this extra work or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and we forget that. I think we, we sort of just think we've got to just work and say yes to everything. So I knew that it was going to really annoy some people because <laughs> I know how, how annoying it is when people have said it to me. <laughs> no, it's, it's a good reminder for sure. And, um, I guess just quickly, I wanted to ask you as well about um, how you manage your time or for anyone listening who's feeling a bit overwhelmed. So I remember someone saying to me that half of being freelance or working for yourself is doing the work and half is planning ahead so that you have work to do. <laughs> um, how do you manage that and how do you kind of make sure there's a balance there? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I probably should be honest and say I'm not sure I've nailed that one totally. <laughs> I mean, I guess the nice thing for me, the lucky thing is that my work, I have a lot of short projects and a lot of very long projects. So because I write books and obviously they might take a year or so. Um, and then I get deadlines that are you know, maybe just a few days away. So I guess that's one part of it. Um, I mean, I don't really like saying this because I, I don't, feel like it's right in terms of the conversation around having children and things but um for me having kids was really useful <laughs> for all of this because it massively reduced the, num the number of hours in the week that I could give over to work and perversely having really um immovable restrictions made it much easier for me to get stuff done in allotted periods of time so um I really recommend a four-day week having gone from a six-day week I've got more done in my four day weeks um, since I started them than I did in my sort of loneliness filled six day weeks, which is weird, um, but it's sort of magic. Uh, so there's, so that's one way that I do it. Um, but I mean, yeah, let's be honest. I still have that feast and famine thing. I had a few weeks recently where I thought I wasn't going to have any work for a couple of months and got really terrified and did that thing of contacting every editor I've ever worked for and being like, hello, hi, hi, can I have some work? Um, and then obviously ended up with too much work um, because that's how it goes. So I think in a way that, ryth that rhythm thing of managing work when you work for yourself is just so hard almost the only way to cope with it is to just accept that it's going to do that and learn to live with that fact rather than fighting against it or fighting your own responses to it um which in a way is actually part probably the biggest advice out there in terms of working for yourself as a whole like fighting against how it is is often quite psychologically disturbing and I mean, this is not exactly an answer to your question, but I, for example, worked out a few years back through through plotting my time over the course of um, the day and plotting my levels of productivity. I realized that I'm creative in the afternoons, but I don't really write very well in the mornings. And that's hard because my day ends at five, but um, at least now I don't hate myself because I can't really write in the mornings. So, you know, I'm not fighting against something that I can't really change and I think 
that the more that we learn, and, and this is something I repeat in the book a lot, the more that we ask questions about ourselves and learn who we are and what we need and want from our working lives and from the rest of our lives as a whole, really, the, the easier that work will be because we can fit ourselves into our own rhythms instead of trying to be somebody we're not or do something in a way that is just practically impossible. Um, and that means accepting your emotional responses to how work is going and being really kind to yourself and not having arguments with yourself, which I, I'm pretty good at. Um, because, you know, you are who you are and you, you're, you deserve to have your work fit around who you are rather than bend yourself until you break to fit what you think your work should be like. Yes. Oh, thank you. Such a good <laughs> reminder. And, um, and also, you know, that's, I guess, what is so brilliant about the book is it is a bit of a reality check at the end of the day as well. Um, you really tell it how it is. And I think that's quite reassuring to read because the other myth I think that is out there around working for yourself is that every single day is like so meaningful and so full of purpose. Yeah. And it's like, no, it's a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I Really early on, before I published the book, I did a really, a really interesting podcast interview with um, the Creative Rebels. And one of them said to me, you know, so what would be your advice for someone who is thinking about going freelance, going to turn their side hustle into a new thing? Which is, you know, a great question. I'm not against the question. But I was like, I'm not here to tell you you should go solo. Like, that's not my that's not my thing. I'm not saying it's the best way to work. It's great for me. And if you want to do it, then go for it. And I'll, and I'll support you and help you through it as much as I can. But I'm not saying it's the perfect way to work um, at all. And some of it's really hard and a lot of it's very unglamorous. Uh, and we shouldn't sort of pretend that it's, you know, you get to paint all day or like <laughs> or like some of my friends think drink champagne in the garden all the time I don't know if you get this but I quite often get this I get of, people just yeah being like I'm just gonna drop I'm just gonna come around pop over yeah. and I'm like I'm working yeah yeah I get that all the time all the time or like oh it's sunny you must be in the garden no 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 I'm looking at a screen just like you <laughs> it reminds me of something I think Zadie Smith said once where they were like oh you know what's the thing that we need to know um, to do with being a writer and she was like that you'll be sat in a chair for eight hours yeah right writing <laughs> it's not glamorous yeah that's the thing people often say to me oh food writing must be amazing and I'm like it is 97% washing up it really is like I love it but it is so much washing up so <laughs> I know I know and I find it with florists they get really annoyed when I'm like oh my god do you just cycle around with your flowers like in the basket on your bike and they're like no I get up at 6 a.m yeah and it's like, yeah, yeah. It's cold and it's really hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, well, thank you so, so much for talking to me. I knew this would be such a brilliant conversation and I feel like we should do a part two one day. Oh, I love that. We've only scraped the surface, really. The book is brilliant. So everyone listening, go and buy it. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs>